Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include the current unrest in France, how to persuade people to change their own minds, and the Wuhan lab leaks. Our first speaker is Andrew Hussey, who is a professor at the University of London in Paris. Andrew is the author of the French Intifada, the long war between France and its Arabs. I've asked Andrew to speak about the rise of the yellow jacket protesters as a response to the actions by the Macron government. I'm also interested in the risk of violence and civil unrest in France, the potential for a Marine Le Pen electoral victory in the next election, and the French perceptions of the success and failures of Brexit. Our second speaker today is Jonah Berger, who is a professor of marketing at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton Business School. I first met Jonah when I was a student of his class on the online teaching company course, How Ideas Spread. Jonah has a new book entitled Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. Jonah believes that we try to persuade others to buy our products or believe our ideas by continually providing more information, more arguments. But this way is hard and often fails because people are resistant to change. Jonah thinks the secret sauce is a catalyst, finding out what the exact barrier is to change and then dealing with that directly by encouraging others to change their own minds. Our third speaker will be Jim Meigs, who is the former editor-in-chief of Popular Mechanics and runs his own podcast entitled How to Fix It. Jim writes uh, in a recent article in the current Commentary magazine, which is entitled The Lab Leak Theory Cover-Up, about COVID and the Wuhan labs. I hope to learn from Jim about why the media shut down any conversation about this hypothesis and why the scientific community also decided not to investigate. I want to learn why the idea is back in the news and why there has not been any condemnation of Biden who has encouraged a full investigation. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any other previous episode or wish to read a transcript, you can find them on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. All right, let's begin today's session. Our next speaker, Andrew Hussey, is a professor at the University of London in Paris. Go ahead, Andrew. Firstly, I want to discuss the riots by the so-called gilets jaunes, the, the yellow vests, which were convulsed in France right up until the pandemic lockdown in 2020, which enforced a temporary calm on the situation. Secondly, I want to look backwards over the past few years to the immigrant riots and the Islamist attacks, which culminated in the terrible massacres uh, at Charlie Hebdo and the Bataclan in 2015. Now, these are events come from two very different parts of French society. In the first instance, the Gilets Jaunes are predominantly white and working class. And in the case of the Islamist attacks, the source is a, a disaffected immigrant population. I'm going to begin with just a simple eyewitness account from Paris of the recent riots. I was caught up in Paris in a violent demonstration. I was trapped 
between the police and frontline rioters. I was battered by a hail of stones from the rioters' side and then tear-gassed by the police. I retreated, coughing, spluttering, and most of all, I was stunned. What really had shocked me profoundly was the anger of the protesters. So, since then, I've been asking myself, how did it happen that the forces of order in France came under such attack with such visible hatred? In 2014, I published a book called The French Intifada. Now, this book opened with very similar scenes of violence during a riot in March 2007. These rioters at the Gare du Nord were mainly black or Arab kids. Kids from the Bonnier, which are the poor suburbs which surround central Paris, and which are made up of a largely immigrant population. The title of the book was deliberately provocative, The French Intifada. And my French publisher actually did not dare to use this title, fearing Islamist reprisals. The analysis which I made in that book seemed to come true in 2015 in the most grotesque fashion with the massacres at Charlie Hebdo and the Bataclan. Now, this is the real point. Since 2015, French politics and society has veered off into a completely new direction. Instead of a terrorist insurgency within France, the so-called French Intifada, the really most important and unpredictable event was the rise of President Macron and then the violent op opposition to his government from the Gilets Jaunes. France is now an increasingly divided country, with class divisions hardened by geography as well as, well as economics. The Gilets Jaunes come from another France, and this is disconnected France, a France which has le been left behind by globalisation. The Macron government is built on an illusion. This much was clear during the recent rounds of um, regional elections, which were characterized by a historic rate of abstention, with around 66%. This silence is the anger of the politically homeless. I think the most important battleground in French politics. Right now in France, looking forward to the presidential elections in 2022, nothing can be taken for granted. How strong are the democratic principles? How strong are the methods of changing power? I think most historians of France would agree that the dynamics of French history has, has been determined by a series of dates, 1789, 1830, 1848, 1870, uh, 1941, 1968. These are all moments where there's a convulsion and there are either revolutions or near revolutions when power is con confronted by the people. I have never known such disarray in French politics. Um, I've never known such anger and hate, and I've been in France for several decades towards... I want to talk about Macron. So what's unbelievable by American political terms is where a third party would come in and not only win the presidential election, but also win the legislative election as well. How do we explain how a third party could sweep and then almost moments later seemingly rejected by a large portion of the population and the Yellow Jackets. How do you have both a democratic revolution in one moment and at the very next moment see such anger and disgust of the new regime? I think you've got straight to the heart of the issue here. Macron had no political tribe behind him. You can think of French um, politics going right back to the revolution as a tribe divided between right and left. So the democratic revolution of, of, of the centrist coming in 
is a kind of invention of a new form of politics, which turns out to be an illusion. Macron is bound to fail because of great big macro and geopolitical, macroeconomic and geopolitical factors that he can't control. And when the generation that have voted him in um, discovers this fact, they're going to feel politically homeless and they're going to feel betrayed. And that's why, you know, I, I started off the talk by talking about my shock at the anger, because what I didn't say was that the people who were throwing stones and rioting, they weren't just young kids um, smashing things up. There were people my age, late 50s, who were seeing their pensions being eroded. They were seeing a future of poverty. I think the French people feel they've been let down by somebody who's a globalized, English-speaking cosmopolitan, but has no connection to the real French. I want to talk about Marine Le Pen next. In her previous election, she was anti-Euro. She was anti-European Union. What are your thoughts on the role of the Yellow Jackets and their support of Marine Le Pen? And why is Marine Le Pen shifting to a more pro-European stance? I think Marine Le Pen has, has moved away from the position of, of, of what was called Frexit um, because the failure of Brexit the British experiment is seen to have failed, and it seems to be high risk in France. So Marine Le Pen is just actually reflecting popular opinion. Now, as far as the Yellow Jackets and support for Marine Le Pen, I think it's very complicated because the Gilets Jaunes um, are not one homogenous political group. They have no leader. They have no spokesperson and they have don't seem to have any kind of ideology um that there are people involved in the far right there are nationalist groups but there are also people involved in the far left most french people are not naturally fascists they're not naturally supporters of the far right they're not naturally supporters of marine le pen and she has failed very badly in these regional elections they failed to win a single region. I believe it was the soft power of the working class. If you despise them enough, they're going to push back. But it doesn't mean that they're going to push back in terms of expressing nationalist ideology. They're not necessarily homophobic. They're not necessarily racist. They're represented in French culture, which, which presents them like that. And I think that's where a lot of the anger comes. I want to go back to that riot you were in. It's shocking for an American listener because we've had race-related riots during the Black Lives Matter movement here in the United States. They lasted a couple of days, and what seemed to be different was that the Yellow Jackets seemed to be going on for weeks, and they didn't have any specific demands, and that there was real anger. What is, what is that? What do they want? What are they trying to accomplish, and how will this play out? started off actually as a peaceful protest, but a hike in gas prices in the countryside, which uh, Macron had, uh, had imposed, it was a grassroots movement with people wearing the yellow jackets uh, round about. Why they were complaining was because there's no, in, there's no transport infrastructure in the countryside. There's very few buses. The great trains, the TGV, they connect the great cities. But if you're trying to get from Paris to the rural north, 
then it's actually very, very difficult. They are literally physically disconnected from France. It turned into a weekly spectacle. Now, if you live in Paris, as, as, I, as I do and I have done for a long time, you get used to demonstrations, and often they do end in violence, and, and often, you know, um, towards the end of the evening, kids will come in and start smashing stuff up, setting fire to cars and so on. But what was... Um, interesting about the um, Gilets Jaunes was it seemed to be both spontaneous and driven by emotion. In other words, it wasn't just the sort of casual kind of, we're just going to fight the police. They were like stage battles. And I have to say as well that, um, you know, I'm, I'm speaking from the left, but I'm not necessarily an enemy of the police. The police were actually sort of um, caught in the middle between the, the, the real politique of the government and the gilets jaunes. And you could, you could see the gilets jaunes shouting at the police, why aren't you on our side? Why aren't you on our side? Because the police as well have been underpaid. They're often the target of attacks in the banlieue. We had an author, Paul Embry. He wrote a, a book called Despised, Why the Modern Left Loathes the Working Class. Paul mentioned that a very similar sort of phenomena exists in the UK, that there was an enormous number of working class communities who've always been Labour, and in the last major election, they voted Conservative. Labour has gone globalist, uh, cosmopolitan, opposed to breakfast. All the ideas that you described about the French elite, he also describes as the English elite. And the British working class, the very people that you know and grew up with in Liverpool have, have switched parties. And I'm wondering how you think about that same phenomenon that exists in the UK. How does it compare and contrast with what you're seeing in France? I think that the phenomenon in the UK of formerly, you know, traditional Labour communities voting Conservative is very parallel in France. But I think the one thing that they do have in common is that they feel despised by a left which seems to promote minorities over majorities. Labour keeps failing in Britain because it no longer represents um, the family that originally gave, gave birth to it, you know, and it's true. My dad voted Conservative in the last election. He's an old style, you know, working class guy from Liverpool. But why is he interested in LGBT rights or trans phobia rights or whatever, you know, he, he's not interested at all. It doesn't mean that he's homophobic or racist or anything like that. It means that, you know, these are not things which interest him. I hear from my French Jewish friends that it is unlivable for a Jewish person to live in France today. I don't know whether it's unlivable, but um, it's very, very difficult and very frightening to be a Jew in France these days. Um, I say this because I, I have a sm small group of, a very close group of Jewish friends, some of whom um, have, you know, family who went to the camps and family who survived the occupation. There's two deep wounds that have never really healed. Um, one is the extent to which the French for a long time denied any active participation in, um, in what happened during the Second World War. The Jews are seen as a target um, by two very specific groups in France at the moment. And this is a very taboo subject. 
but it's it's true. One group that hates the Jews and blames the Jews is the Muslim population of France. Not all of them, of course, but to a large extent, and certainly the extreme Islamist population, blames the Jews for the Israel-Palestine conflict. And then what they do is they, they map that template of the Israel-Palestine conflict onto the way they feel in, in, in France. So, you know, you'll see kids walking around the Bonneau with um, T-shirts identifying themselves with, with Gaza and, and things like that. And that they see French, the, the, the French are like the Israelis and, you know, it's occupied territory, the Jews control everything and so on. And then you've got a very separate population which thinks the same thing, but is coming from a completely different angle. And this is the extreme form of Catholicism and right-wing nationalism. But I attended anti-gay marriage demonstration uh, by organized by Catholics, and the graffiti at the end um, baffled me. Um, as the as the as the demonstration broke up, there were two slogans. One of which said, um, "Death to um, homos." Um, and the other one said, death to Jews. What was, the, what was the connection between the two? The only connection I could make was that Jews represent modernity. They represent culture, civilized values, and so on. And these are the things that reactionary Catholics with a, with a, with a nostalgia reject, and they see you know, same-sex marriages as part of that um, you know, modernity. Um, and it's strange how the mainly white, far-right Catholic groups speak the same language as the angry um, jihadis of the Bonnier. Once again, the Jews are the, are the victims, are the people to be blamed for everything that goes wrong in France. A Jewish friend of mine, born in Tunisia, came to France in Tunisia. Uh, became independent, and he said, when I was a young man, France was a paradise for Jews. Now it's turning into an, an inferno. I get that. Uh, switching back to the Muslim population, I was first introduced to you by your book, The French Intifada. It described a sort of cancer growing just outside of suburban Paris, where there were these two communities that were not only not getting along, but where it seemed potentially getting ready for war. Yes, the Jello Jackets have taken the news, and yes, Macron has changed the political dynamics slightly, but is that problem still festering? It's going to be an enormous problem in the years ahead. Now, since 2015, the year of the Charlie Hebdo massacre, I think the, there's been a very hard-headed military and intelligence operations which have kind of muted a lot of Islamist activity been reduced more to a problem of criminality, which it isn't. It's an ideological problem. By the same token, the, the disaffection which makes jihadis, and this is what I was interested in, the French Intifada, hasn't gone away. And I'm going to be very honest about my opinions here. I, I think it's important that the Bonnier are improved physically and economically, and transport is improved, and unemployment is improved. But that is not the whole answer. And I, uh, you've read the French Intifada, I debate taboo, and I've got into a lot of trouble for saying this, is that this is not just about politics, it's about psychoanalysis. And, you know, I say this because if you follow the pattern of the young jihadi, um, young guy smokes dope, hangs out, 
acts like a gangster. Um, it's girls, drugs, showing off, etc. Minor criminality, maybe gets locked up, and then starts to question who he is, what he is, where his identity is. And I did a lot of work in French prisons. I could see that French prisons were the engine room of radicalism in France. Because what happens is that the, the, this prototype guy meets somebody, a self-proclaimed imam, who says, this is, this is what the problem is. The problem is that you're not French, that you don't belong here. You belong in, you know, in, in, in Muslim civilization, and you, you, you have the possibility to actually become a soldier for God. I don't like to be an apocalyptic doomsayer. See, I think this is a reality. If there is an answer, I don't know what it is. We don't spend a lot of time in the United States thinking about the French Civil War in Algeria. Algeria was a part of France. It was like a state. And there was a there were millions of French civilians living there. They were living a French life. When the Algerians voted overwhelmingly among its Muslim population for an independent Algeria, the French moved from Algeria back to the mainland. But they also brought with them a substantial number of Muslim Algerians who had helped fight for France. And now it's that very population that has been unable to assimilate. How will France deal with that? The population you're referring to are called Aki. Um, that's the Arabic um, term which describes the people who fought for France. Um, to the end of the Algerian War in 1962, a lot of these people were abandoned and left in um, Algeria. And when they came to France, they found that Mother France didn't really care for them. They were given bad shanty town housing, and they, they were caught between two worlds, an Algeria which was independent and proud and, and becoming even more Muslim, um, and, and a, a country they fought for, but which didn't recognize or, or honor the sacrifices that they'd made. But that belongs to the 1960s and 70s, and the real challenge, which are now the fourth and I think fifth generations of, of that population, um, who wonder how they've ended up in this situation. And I think that, you know, the Algerian war has never, ever gone away in the psyche of either the French people or the Muslim the French Muslim population of France. For example, I interviewed the footballer Zinedine Zidane several years ago. Is an of Algerian yeah. origin. France played Algeria football soccer in 2001, and there was a riot. Um, the, the, the pitch was invaded, and the match was abandoned. And he said it was the worst moment of his life. And of course, Zidane had won the, French, the World Cup for for France, and was regarded as the great symbol of unity. Um, but what the fans were chanting at that match, and which left Zidane in tears, was the phrase Zidane Aki, Zidane Aki. The, Zidane was a traitor who was working for the French, and there's a long-standing myth in the Bonya that um, Zidane comes from a family of Akis. And when I asked him about this, he didn't want to talk about it. That's an incredible story. One of the aspects that I think shocked me was an army coup attempt against de Gaulle during the Algerian Civil War, when de Gaulle was unwilling to continue to push for French uh, continued ownership of Algeria. 
The French Army, the Air Force, and the paratroopers attempted a coup, and for a G7 country to have attempted a coup as recently as the early 1960s, it's truly a shock. Um, to what extent, if the French Army, if they see disorder, if the rioting in the streets gets out of control, do you think there's a potential for a coup in France today? From generals in the mainly retired generals um, from the French army, but then backed up by a um, petition by several thousand um, serving soldiers who said that you know they were prepared to step in and a civil war was brewing. This is a very small minority group of, of people, but it had to be taken seriously. Seventy percent of people in a in a poll poll actually agreed with the um, the complaints that the generals were making that um, that the Bonnier were out of control, that um, they were out there in Mali or wherever they were in the Sahel fighting radical Islam, dying at the hands of Islamist, while they felt the French government were making concessions towards them. So if you're living in Bordeaux or Nice or Paris, it might seem ridiculous, the idea of a, cord, uh, of a coup. But it's not so far away that the coup, you, the near coup that you described um, in 1961 happened in a, you know, what is now a G7 country, that France really did stand on the brink of a civil war. The United States and France, as far as I'm aware, are the only two countries which are built on an idea the pursuit of happiness, and in France, um, liberté, égalité, fraternité. And the role of the army in France um, is to be an agent of the republic. The role of the police, the gendarmerie, is to defend the republic. And when they see the, the killing of the, uh, the execution, the beheading of um, priests or teachers, uh, as such as the case in, in, um, in November with the teacher Samuel Paty. Um, it's the idea of the Republic is like a kind of secular religion. And the role of the army, the role of the police, is to defend the values of this. this. You mentioned French perceptions of Brexit, and you mentioned that the belief in France is that Brexit has not been effective, it hasn't worked. First of all, why do you believe that? Second, the vaccine has been successfully distributed in the UK, and it's been a bit delayed in France and the rest of the European Union, and that failure couldn't be indicative of problems of a supranational government dealing with a crisis versus a nation state. Initially, there was a small group of French people, mainly on the right, who thought that maybe Britain had done the right thing and that this was going to work. But I think what they've seen from the French side of the channel is, is not the success, but rather um, a shambles. France has been very vaccine um, skeptical because in 2008, um, a new diabetes drug came out and um, killed quite a lot of people. So people are very you know, anxious about the, the dangers of rolling out new drugs. I can't think of a single person that I know from different social strata or from um, different political camps who um, thinks Brexit's been a success. I'd like to end each session on a note of optimism. I'm a believer in, in 
the working class in France. I think the abstentionism in the recent elections shows a very healthy suspicion of the political classes at the moment. But in the long term, it's always been the French working classes that have been the backbone of the nation. And I say that because I come from a Liverpool working class background and I kind of have first-hand knowledge of how actually true that is. And that's what is, is driving me to write the book at the moment. It's, it's called the France, the Invisible Nation. And I'm optimistic that the long history of the working class in France will outlive the short-term history of 21st century globalization. Andrew, thank you. Okay, our next speaker is Jonah Berger. He is professor of marketing at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton Business School. Uh, he has just written a book called Catalyst. Jonah, please go ahead. Thanks. Uh, so all of us have something very much in common, uh, regardless of where we live uh, and what industry we're in and what role we have in our organizations. Uh, we all have something that we want to change. Uh, so folks in marketing and sales want to change a customer or a client's mind. Uh, employees want to change the boss's mind and leaders want to transform organizations. Uh, startups want to change industries and, and nonprofits want to change the, the world. But change is really hard. Uh, often we push and we pressure and cajole and do a lot of work uh, and nothing happens. And so the very simple question I'm going to ask today is, could there be a better way? Could there be a better way to change minds and drive action, not by pushing, uh, but, by, but by doing something else? Um, and so that's exactly what I talk about uh, in The Catalyst, uh, so my recent uh, New York Times and, and Wall Street Journal bestseller, is really exploring the science of change uh, and more importantly, what we can do to change others' minds uh, and, and drive action. And as I mentioned, you know, when we have something we want to change, we, we tend to take a particular approach, and that is some version of, of pushing. So I've interviewed uh, thousands of folks from a variety of different industries, and again and again, when asked to write down something they want to change and something they think about doing to change it, they come up with some version of pushing. We provide more information, more facts, more figures, more reasons. We send people one more PowerPoint deck, make one more phone call, send one more email. We think if we just push people a little more, they'll come around. Uh, and it's clear why we think pushing works, right? In the physical world, if we want to move something, pushing is actually a great way to get it to go. If I have a, a chair, for example, that's sitting in the middle of a room and I want to move that chair, well, pushing it's a great way to get it to go. I push on the chair and the chair slides across the floor. But when we apply that same intuition to people, we run into a little snag, which is not only that people aren't chairs, but when you push people, people don't just go, they push back. They think about all the reasons why they don't want to do what we're suggesting. They're digging their heels, and they actually become less likely to do what we want rather than more. Not only do they resist, but they push back. And in fact, the more we push, the more they push back. And so if pushing doesn't work, what, what does? Well, there's a nice analogy to be made to a very different discipline, and that is chemistry. And in chemistry, change is very hard, right? Uh, it takes eons for carbon to be squeezed into diamonds or uh, plant matter to turn into oil. And so chemists in the lab often add temperature and pressure to try to make change faster and easier, right? They squeeze things together. They heat them up to create chemical change. But it turns out there's a special set of substances that chemists often use that make change happen faster and easier, but do it in a slightly different way. They actually require less energy, not more. Rather than heating things up or requiring more energy to squeeze them together, they make the same amount of change with less energy, not more. Now, that might seem impossible. How can we make change happen with less energy? It's, change always requires energy. But what these substances do is they identify the barriers to change, and they mitigate them. As you can probably guess, these substances are called catalysts. 
right? Uh, and the same idea applies to the social world. Rather than trying to say, okay, well, what could I do to get someone to change? Great catalysts, great change agents often ask a subtly but importantly different question. Why hasn't that person changed already? What's stopping them? What are the barriers or obstacles that are getting in the way of change? And how by mitigating them can I make change more, more likely? A, a good analogy, a good way to think about it, you know, imagine you're parked in a car. You're parked on a hill. Uh, you get in the car. You stick your key to the ignition. You turn uh, the key, um, and you step your foot on the gas. If the car doesn't go, we often think, wow, I must need more gas. Right? If I just step on the gas, the car will move. And we often use that same idea applying to people. If people don't move, we think we just need more gas. If I just push on them harder, they'll change. Well, we can step on the gas all we want. If the parking brake is engaged, the car's not going to go anywhere. Right? And so before we can get change to happen, we got to depress that parking brake. And so this is the real insight behind the book and behind the quick conversation we're going to have today. How can we be better at finding the parking brakes? Right? We have barrier blindness. We're so aware of the change we want to have happen, but we don't really understand what the barriers are. We don't often know what the obstacles are because we're so focused on we what we want, we don't think about the people or the organizations we're trying to change. And so we got to get better at finding the barriers. And so in, in writing this book, I've talked to uh, amazing sets of people. I've talked to top-selling sales professionals and transformational leaders. I've talked to uh, best-performing consultants. I've talked to people who change their boss's mind in the most difficult situations. But I've also talked to some unusual folks. I've talked to hostage negotiators. I've talked to substance abuse counselors. And I've talked to parenting experts. People have to create change in much more difficult situations than most of us do uh, in our daily lives. And again and again, the same five barriers came up. And so in the catalyst, I put them in a framework called the REDUCE framework. That stands for reactance, endowment, distance, uncertainty, and corroborating evidence. Put those five things together, and they spell a word, and that word is reduce, which is exactly what great catalysts do. They don't push harder. They don't uh, add more pressure. They don't provide more facts, more figures, more reasons. They identify the obstacles, and they mitigate them. They figure out what the barriers are, uh, and they figure out how to get, uh, get them out of the way. And so I don't know if we'll talk about all five of the barriers uh, during uh, the question and answer period. We probably won't have time for, for all of them, uh, but feel free to, uh, to check out more information uh, in the book or on my website. Lots of free resources there. But again, the goal here is really simple, right? How can we change the way we think about change, and by doing that, um, make us more able to change anything? Jonah, thank you so much for that. You know, in, in your book, you give the example of the hostage negotiator, where you try to persuade someone um, to come up with their hands up, even though that means they're going to get arrested and, and not get the objectives they want. What did you learn from the hostage negotiator, someone who doesn't even know uh, the opponent, probably in his worst possible state of his life? How do you um, change that person's mind to do what he doesn't want to do? Yeah, so it was really interesting talking to, to Hassan negotiators, and, and um, I, I agree with much of what you said, but I don't agree with all of it. Actually, what the great negotiators do is they learn as much as possible about the person they're trying to change, right? So um, novice negotiators, they try to start with influence. They you know, bang in there and they go, hey, you know, come out with your hands up. Do this or else. They, they start with influence, um, but that doesn't work. Right? All it does is it encourages people to hold up, uh, to, you know, to get more scared, to become more aggressive, and do all the things that they don't want them to do. And so what um, uh, accomplished, successful, um, uh, you know, seasoned negotiators do is they start with something very different. I talked to one guy, uh, his name is Greg Becky, and, and he uh, always starts by saying, hey, you know, uh, tell me more about you. Uh, hey, I'm Greg. You know, are you doing okay? 
right? Are you doing okay? Do you have everything you need? Starts by saying, let me build a bridge. Let me find out who this person is. Let me find out what this person needs and show them that I care about them, right? Starting by building social connections, saying, hey, I'm Greg, are you okay? Then using that to build a relationship. Don't start by asking what you want to have happen because then it seems like it's all about you. Start with them. Start with them and start with understanding. Start by showing that you care. Start by asking questions to understand why they're there and what the problem is. And only once we've gotten to that point, right, only once we understand them, can we move around so that we get them to do what we wanted them to do in the first place. He tells this great story where he's talking to a guy who wants to commit suicide. And, and this is a, a little bit of a dark story, but it has a, a positive ending. So uh, apologies. But um, uh, he's talking to someone who's thinking about committing suicide. And, and the guy wants to commit suicide because he's lost his job. Uh, and he has no way to provide for his family. And he thinks the only way to provide for his family is if he kills himself, the insurance company will pay for that. Now, what most of us would want to do in this situation is we come in and say, hey, look, by the way, the insurance company is not going to pay out if you kill yourself, so you should, you should just skip that right away. But if somebody's thinking about killing themselves, that's not going to solve their problem, right? They're highly emotionally volatile, um, and they could do anything at any moment. And so he doesn't do that. He starts by starting a conversation. Hey, I'm Greg. Are you okay? Great. Okay. And starts having a conversation. Starts saying, well, well you know, why are you here? You know, t t tell me about you. What, what, do you. what do you care about? And the guy says, oh, look, you know, I'm uh, worried about um, providing for my family. And Greg says, oh, you sound like you care a lot about your family. And the guy says, yeah, you know, I do. I've got two great boys. I, I want them to be wonderful young men. And Greg says, oh, well, tell me about your boys. And so the guy starts talking about his boys and how he takes them fishing and how he teach them to be polite and how he wants them to, to grow up and, and all those wonderful, wonderful things. And, you know, they talk about their kids for a number of minutes and they talk about some other things. And, you know, at a certain point in the conversation, Greg goes, well, wow, you know, if you kill yourself today, your kids will, will lose the best friend they've ever had. And then he pauses for just a moment. But because what he's done really cleverly, he said, look, I asked all these questions. I know all these things about the person I'm trying to change. But rather than saying, hey, don't kill yourself, because if I tell you what to do, you'll push back. And that's the idea of reacting. Instead, he asks questions to find out, well, what does that person care about? And then shows that person how the best way to reach what they want is to do what he wanted to do in the first place. And so that's why questions are so powerful. We've got to start with understanding. Start by understanding the person we're trying to change, and only then can we reach the desired, desired outcome. We had a, uh, a book club a couple of years ago with another warden professor, Stuart Diamond, who is in their negotiation department at Wharton. And in his book, Getting More, uh, he also emphasized the importance of when you're in negotiation with a third party to try to understand as much as possible. Uh, one of my favorite quotes he gave was, um, in the negotiation, the other side called him an asshole, and he said, tell me more. Tell me why I'm an asshole. So he could just continue to more understand or better understand the nature of what was causing that sort of riff. Um, when you do want to change someone's mind more broadly from, um, you know, not killing themselves, for example, but maybe to encourage them to buy a product, um, you may not have a chance to ask them um, about their product. Is in your mind, what you have to do is more surveys to better appreciate the nature of the consumer experience. How, how do you find out more when you don't know the person across you're trying to persuade? Yeah, I mean, there's lots of different ways, right? So reactance is, is all about the idea of, you know, too often we push people. And what do people do when they're pushed? They push back. 
right? You know, um, uh, too often we assume if we just tell people what to do, they'll do it, right? But if we tell people what to do, they're not going to be likely to do it. They're often going to say no. And so I talk a lot about that chapter about how do we allow for agency, right? How do we give that people back some sense of freedom and control, uh, whether through choices or other ways, so that they feel like they're a participant uh, in, in the process. And so I'm happy to go through, you know, one or two of the barriers if useful, but there are lots of different strategies for collecting information. And in the book, you discuss politics a little bit as well and how to persuade a population to go on with, with your ideas. Uh, and one example you gave was for Brexit, where you said um, that the winning campaign was, um, let's go back to where we were before. I forgot the exact name that you gave or what the exact um, title was. Um, how effective do you think um, political can political persuasion is, is by using the method that you've just discussed, using the catalyst. Yeah, I mean, uh, what's amazing is that uh, how challenging cha change in politics is. We think nobody uh, changes their mind in politics. We think the world's extremely divisive uh, at the moment and nobody changes. But I talked to a number of people in the book um, who did change, who did change sides um, uh, and talk a lot about their stories and how other people were able to get them to change. I, I tell the story and um, uh, dig into the science uh, behind deep canvassing, for example, which um, uh, was able to get, um, you know, strongly conservative voters uh, to support transgender rights. Um, uh, what they didn't do is come in and say, hey, you should support transgender rights. Let me tell you why you should support transgender rights. Um, instead, they use a technique um, uh, which bridges the gap and uh, finds points in common um, and uses that to, to get people uh, to change. And, uh, you know, we, we think that information will solve the problem. We think, oh, look, let me just expose people to information to the other side. And um, I talk a lot about a study that was done a couple of years ago by a Duke sociologist who tried exactly that. Right? He said, great, um, information works. We'll give people information from the other side. Uh, we'll give Republicans uh, information about, about Democrats and Democrats information about Republicans. They had people on Twitter, for example, follow bots that posted information uh, from, from the other side. And the notion is that information works, right? Oh, you know, the reason for political polarization is just lack of information. If we just reached across the aisle and talked to other people on the other side, that would create change. But it didn't work. In fact, it backfired. Giving people information about what the other side thought made them more polarized, not, not less, right? And so it's not just about giving people information. It's about giving people information in, in the right way. Um, in the distance chapter, for example, I talk a lot about asking for less and then asking for more. If people are too far from where we are at the moment, it's so far they're even unwilling to listen to the possibility of changing. So we really need to start with them and where they are, put information or ideas that are near where they are uh, already and move them a little bit uh, in one way and then a little bit further. Um, uh, product designers often call this stepping stones, right? They don't, when, particularly when they're trying to make big change, they don't just roll out a new version of a product that's completely different. Instead, what they often do is they roll out micro versions of the product that are moving in the right direction. Um, uh, maybe it's not as advanced as the whole new product is, but it gets people to adopt a newer technology, a newer technology, a newer technology. And suddenly they look and they've crossed the river. Right? If you say, hey, you know, cross this big, wide river, it's, it's going to be great on the other side. People say, well, no, I'm fine where I am. I'm going to get wet. But if they're stepping stones along the way, it's easy for them to jump from one thing to the next and eventually make that big chain. And so... We've got to chunk the change in some sense. We've got to take big change, break it down into smaller, more manageable chunks, and, and then people will be more likely to move. You know, sometimes what you're describing is um, 
we're trying to persuade someone to do something that they don't want to do. But what happens if you want to help them do something that they do want to do? I'll give you an example. Um, many people want to diet and lose five or ten pounds. Um, they know that eating too much is the cause. Um, but they're somehow unable to change their patterns of behavior. Um, how can someone help someone do what they want to do? How do they help them change the behaviors that they know are, are problematic? Yeah, I mean, I think the key question is to figure out, well, what's the barrier getting in the way? I mean, that's, that's the first question. I think too often we jump to the solution without knowing what the problem is. When, when you go to a doctor's office, the doctor doesn't start by saying, let me put a cast on your leg, right? The doctor starts by saying, oh, well, tell me about the problem. And only once they understand the problem do they prescribe a solution. And so I would say the same thing, right? Um, in terms of people that are trying to lose weight, well, what's the issue? Is that they don't remember to eat healthier? They don't remember to exercise? Um, uh, that they don't want to eat healthier, that they don't want to exercise, um, or is it something else? And depending on what the barrier is, there may be different solutions that may be more or, or less effective. And so we really have to start by understanding the problem before we can prescribe the solution. I think too often, you know, we, we want something that uh, is very quick, right? We want the quick and easy thing. I, I do so many interviews where someone says, oh, well, there are five barriers. You know, tell me the most important one. It's like, well, there are five barriers for a reason, right? All, all of them are important. We're, we're weeding, the, weeding the backyard, and, you know, the fastest way to weed the yard is to rip off the top of the weed and move on. But then a week later, it's going to grow back, right? And so to really change things, we've got to find that root. We've got to figure out the underlying reason for, for a problem or the underlying barrier getting in the way. And only once we understand that can we really create change more, more effectively. Why does your work in the marketing department of all places? Why isn't it in psychology? Why isn't it in negotiation? What uh, – how come your work ended up in uh, in a marketing department? I, I publish both in uh, marketing and management and psychology. I publish uh, papers in all those disciplines. Um, uh, you know, at the core, what we're talking about is influence, um, which is certainly uh, at the core a marketing topic. Um, but the same ideas that help marketers uh, sell products and ideas uh, are what help people change their bosses or colleagues' mind, are what help parents change their kids' behavior. Um, you know, I think one key insight um, that marketing really has that's been lost in some other disciplines is a focus on the customer. You know, I teach the core at the Wharton School, and so I, I um, you know, uh, all of our MBAs come in, they, teach, they take a marketing class to start, and I sort of head the core program for us. And one key principle of that program is start with customers, start with understanding. I don't start with the product or service you have. Don't be product-focused, be customer-focused. Who is your customer? What do they need? Understand them. Right? We often think about marketing as selling people things. Marketing is not about selling people things. Marketing is about understanding people's needs and meeting those needs. Right? Good marketing isn't about uh, selling what you can make. It's not about just saying, okay, I've got this thing. How do I sell it? Good marketing is really about making what you can sell. Right? Starting by saying, what is that need? Let me discover. Let me use research to understand that need through customer insight and other ways. Then let me design products or services that meet those needs. And then let me communicate the value that I've created and capture the value at the end of that chain. We're going to be much more effective if we understand the customer rather than just starting with us. As a, as a minor business, is this podcast, and most of the people that listen to this call are friends of mine, but there's also friends of friends. How important are peer effects in success of marketing a product? Well, my first book, um, uh, Contagious, is all about peer effects, all about word of mouth. Um, uh, and that book really changed my life. And that book is how I, in some sense, got to this new book, The Catalyst. You know, before that book, I was uh, a teacher and a researcher, and that was it. 
um, uh, you know, uh, Contagious is my, my first book. Um, uh, it's uh, now out in over half a million copies uh, in over 35 languages around the world. And I got to work with a lot of companies and organizations, you know, everything from large Fortune 500s like the Googles and Nikes and Apples of the world uh, to small startups, for-profits, non-profits. I learned a lot about marketing. I learned a lot about influence. And what I realized is that similar to what I said at the beginning, everyone basically has something that they want to change. Um, and so I realized, hey, you know, pushing wasn't working. Um, and so that's what led me on this journey to really understand these other drivers of behavior. But peer effects are, are very important. Um, Contagious talks a lot about uh, what drives word of mouth and how peer effects work. And so um, I'm certainly a big believer in this. Jonah, thank you so much for your time. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to welcome our next guest, Jim Meigs. He is a former editor-in-chief at Popular Mechanics and is a scientific journalist by training. Uh, he's currently at Commentary Magazine, and excitingly, I think, he is a podcaster like myself, and his podcast is entitled, How Do We Fix It? Jim is going to talk to us today about the Wuhan lab leaks. Jim, go ahead. Thanks. Great to be here. I think that understanding the origin of the COVID-19 pandemic is one of the most important public health questions, certainly of our lifetime. And unfortunately, the way the global health establishment, many leading scientists, the news media and government agencies in the U.S. approached this question was very problematic and actually um, disturbing to some degree. So I want to go back to the very early days of the pandemic and just make sure people have the right perspective because we tend to edit our memories of how these things went down. So in January and February, the idea that the COVID-19 might have leaked from one of the labs in Wuhan, China, was not considered a really bizarre or extreme idea. It was floated actually in China. Uh, a, a number of um, scientists thought this is something we should look at. Uh, a, a, leading virologist named Christian Anderson actually emailed Anthony Fauci saying, looking at the, the, the genome of the virus saying, some of the features potentially look engineered, which would refer back to the idea that in some types of virus research, there's some manipulation of the genome for various reasons. Uh, that, and it may not, some, it's not necessarily to make it into a bioweapon or something like that. It's a, it's a legitimate aspect or controversial, but, but, but generally accepted aspect of research to do this kind of manipulation. Well, if this virus really came out of a lab uh, and had been manipulated, you know, that was a real bombshell. Almost overnight, uh, people started pushing back against that idea, including the virologists who'd sent that email to Anthony Fauci. Uh, Peter uh, Dazak, the head of a group called the EcoHealth Alliance, which is a group that distributes uh, government grant money through its organization to scientists around the world, uh, a leading, uh, leading figure in this, in this world. He organized a letter to be published in the Lancet, the British Medical Journal, with 27 top public health experts and virologists. And they didn't just say that they thought that the lab leak theory was was uh, unlikely that an origin in the natural world was more likely, but they said it was uh, they said it was a conspiracy theory to suggest that COVID-19 does not have a natural origin. A lot of scientists looked at that and said, "Well, that's not a very scientific statement. We really we don't have the evidence to know one way or the other." But nonetheless, that was the the uh, 
the, the version of this theory that took hold among a lot of scientists and then even more strongly among the news media. In late January, Senator Tom Cotton uh, gave a talk in which he mentioned the possibility of a lab leak. It's something that should be looked into. And that almost immediately caused this kind of antibody response in the, in the media and in our in political circles to condemn the idea of even looking into the lab leak as if it was some kind of, of um, you know, crazy out there Trumpian conspiracy theory. The New Washington Post called it, said he was, quote, fanning the empires of a, excuse me, fanning the embers of a conspiracy theory that has already been debunked by experts. And Slate called it good old-fashioned racism was what explained this thinking. Very premature to to say that this thing had been debunked. It had been questioned. There had been pushback from some scientists, but it had certainly not been debunked. There was also some similar reaction from World Health Organization, especially the WHO, which, you know, in the early days of the pandemic was, was again and again seemed dangerously deferential to the accounts of this that, that China wanted to promote. It, it described the spread of these ideas as, quote, an infodemic. So the, um, it was widely assumed that this was all a reaction to Trump. But actually, if you go back and you look at Trump's statements regarding China in, in January and February, they were actually quite positive. Again and again, he said, well, I just talked, got off the phone with Xi. They're doing a great job. They're working hard on this. It was only later that the Trump administration really, you know, began to um, uh, politicize and go overboard on a lot of these statements as, as it did on so many different different issues. We later learned that Peter Gazak, who had organized the letter to The Lancet, that it, because he's involved in distributing all these grants, he had a long history of, of funneling grant money to the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Nothing wrong with that, but it certainly put him in a compromised position to be, uh, in terms of conflict of interest, to be uh, poo-pooing the idea that the virus might have come from that, um, uh, from from that institute. What we see in the uh, the reaction to the reaction is a more positive story, where some independent scientists uh, began to explore this, you know, outside of the mainstream channels of their field. Typically, some reporters start kept kept working on this and and plugging away. And typically not, this wasn't the New York Times or, or the Washington Post, typically. It was um, Vanity Fair did a really impressive big story. You wouldn't think of a mostly entertainment magazine doing this, but they did an excellent story by a writer named Catherine Ebon. Uh, novelist Nicholson Baker looked into it in New York Magazine. And I think most telling, in early 2021, 20, uh, uh, Nicholas Wade, a former New York Times science writer who'd been kind of pushed out for being sort of a crusty, not necessarily politically correct force on the paper. He published a long, self-published a long piece on Medium. A couple of weeks later, Donald uh, G. McNeil, another, the New York Times former top reporter on COVID, who had also been pushed out sort of for political reasons, wrote a piece called How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Lab Leak Theory. Again, self-published. So the key point here is that there was, for for well-intended political reasons, perhaps um, 
but but political nonetheless, there was a, a really premature effort to prevent the discussion, to stigmatize the discussion of what should have been uh, something that was certainly within the realm of things that we would want to explore as possible sources of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the um, the fact that it took the mostly outsiders and people working slightly, you know, out of the mainstream it tells us that we have a, 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 a culture in science, in the media, in politics that is uh, is not as open as it should be and, it, and is too quick to uh, – to try to close doors on information that might be perceived as as helping the wrong side or or providing ammunition to the wrong side, and you still see people defending uh, this this reluctance to address the lab leak theory in that way. So my um, my my basic uh, takeaway from this is we need to really fight for diversity and and open dialogue in our media in the scientific establishment, certainly in our global institutions. And in, over the last few months, we've seen this discussion open back up. The Biden administration has has demanded a more thorough investigation and more cooperation from China, which will not be forthcoming, but at least they are acknowledging that this is an important issue to look at. Now, you'll notice I haven't answered the question, did the virus come from the Wuhan lab? I'm afraid we may never know. And I'm not a virologist myself, so I can't say, oh, it's 70% likely or 80% likely, but certainly in the months since this has come out, evidence in favor of a natural origin has not materialized, whereas, whereas provocative findings that suggest the strong possibility of a lab leak origin keep, uh, keep coming out. None of this is proof, but it is certainly shows a direction that we should be investigating. You know, um event didn't come out in isolation. Um, we also had other scientific uh, media-related issues as related to the pandemic. For example, um, should we use masks? Um, should, how, how deadly is this? Um, how should we change our behaviors? All this was also discussed uh, in the scientific community as well. Should we close schools? All this was discussed in the, in the, Chinese, in the scientific community and in the media, and there was opposition uh, to the, the Trump administration as well. So we have, to, we, we have to think about it in context. It wasn't just an isolation. How do you think about um, this issue as it relates to the other issues that were discussed, uh, both in science and media, as we were tr desperately trying to figure out what to do? There's this notion in the science of how institutions respond to disasters. It's called elite panic. After an earthquake or all kinds of natural disasters or, or man-made disasters, there's often an assumption that the public's going to do the wrong thing, and we need to make sure we're all organized in law enforcement and everything else to not to prevent panic, prevent people running around and, and making the problem worse. Uh, and so, in a sense, the elites, the people who are in charge, who we, we trust to take to help us, they panic and they worry more about the public's reaction than they than than the real problem at hand. We see this again and again, and we saw it at, with the COVID nineteen panic, uh, the, uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic. There was a, a very ingrained assumption that people would do the wrong thing, so they would hoard masks. So we'll tell them, no, no, masks don't work. You know, it was better to to lie to the public in order to protect the supply of PPE 
than to be honest and just explain with a little bit of nuance why it's more important for people in the hospitals to have masks right now than, you know, the, the general public. That was an early example, but a lot of people who are skeptical of institutions constantly bring that up. It's like, well, how can we trust them? They told us masks didn't work. The, the, those errors of messaging and, and self-contradiction on the part of our public health authorities were a really big problem. It's, it's continuing to this day uh, it, with information that is uh, contradictory or, or sometimes somewhat exaggerated. The biggest, I think one of the big temptations is to, is to try to scare people into compliance with what we, what we hope they will do. And I think we're seeing some of that today with the Delta variant. So, and then the media doubles down. The media will take a statement that might be a little bit too strong from a public health official, and they will amplify it even even more uh, in ways that I think are not helpful. Um, uh, they're not honest, but they're also not helpful because sooner or later the public just kind of tunes out to the point where if they don't trust you about masks, then later they might not trust you about vaccines. And we're seeing the devastating impact of that vaccine hesitancy today. Some of it is is deep-seated in our culture, but some of it was encouraged, or, or you know, a situation that was uh, unfortunately uh, amplified both by the public officials and then, you know, certainly there's irresponsible politicians on both sides uh, who who tend to make this stuff worse. What's weird about this example as a contrast to the math story you just gave um, is that it wasn't really coming from public health officials that the Chinese lab leak theory was untrue. It was coming from Lancet, for example, or um, or the New York Times. Well, it came Why? from both, actually. It came from both. I mean, we 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 had um, we had the um, and the World Health Organization was was also um, poo pooing this, and so it was um, it was a kind of an unhealthy feedback loop that that intensified the, the whole idea that this this topic wasn't just highly unlikely but out of bounds. And the only, and the and the implication was the only people who would bring it up are bringing it up for a political reason, which might have been true in some cases. That's the paradox of these things. You know, there were certainly people who, you know, um, for political reasons, wanted to badmouth China. But that in itself doesn't really tell you anything about the 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 truth or falsehood of a certain hypothesis. So let's talk about the WHO for a sec. Um, this is an organization that didn't originally include China, and then China joined the organization. The WHO sent a team to China to investigate the situation, uh, but they were very deferential um, and obsequious, it seemed, as it was, at least as shown in the media in the United States. Um, how should we, and then, you know, Trump was making declarations that we should potentially leave the WHO if they can't do their job properly. And then, you know, the idea in the media was, you know, how could we be even considering leaving the WHO in the middle of a global pandemic? How should, what yeah. did we learn about the WHO? Um, you know, were they deferential to the Chinese? Did it do its job as an investigative uh, unit, or was it, it never had a chance because the Chinese weren't going to allow it? How should we think about um, WHO as our leading health organization internationally? Yeah, all those questions are are really important and all mixed up in a way that does not 
lead to an easy answer. Yes, it's really important to have an institution like the World Health Organization to share data and, and uh, coordinate responses uh, to pandemics, and they've done a lot of good work over the years. But China is a, uh, you know, is the 800-pound gorilla in any organization. Uh, uh, Tedros, his, his full name is, is, uh, is almost unpronounceable to me, so everybody just calls him Tedros, the head of the World Health Organization, was really obsequious to China in the early days. The, the organization, as you said, in, when a team was sent to, to um, Wuhan to investigate the origin, they were given very, very little access, and they didn't push back very much. The Wuhan Institute took their massive database of genom genomic uh, data on all these bat viruses. I, I should rewind a little bit for those who don't know. The, the Wuhan Institute of Virology is, is famous as the world's top institution to study certain types of bat viruses that are that are found in China, which have been linked to uh, to other illnesses. So it's a you know the idea that a a virus the pandemic caused by a virus that looks a lot like bat viruses came out of the Wuhan Institute is not much of a stretch when you you know if you're just looking for uh, uh, correlation. Now correlation is not causation, but it does. But it's also it doesn't mean it's something that you completely ignore. So when they sent that team to the lab, the lab shut down all of their. Uh, they they refused to give access to all the data, and. Um, Peter Dayzak, who I mentioned earlier, he was later quoted saying, "Well, that's not a big deal. We kind of knew what was in there. That's okay, uh, but it's not okay. It was this is ridiculous in the middle of a global health crisis to shut down the database that may hold the answers, and that and that kind of research is the thing that is what science does very well in a very distributed way. You need you, it's good to have hundreds of scientists around the world looking into that database in different ways and and studying it." And that's exactly what uh, what China did not allow. So the World Health Organization did a bad job of of using whatever muscle it 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 might have had. The 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 people on the team, the investigatory team, did not complain enough about really being subjected to kind of a a whitewash, and um, and so that is very troubling. On the other hand, in, in 2021, the World Health Organization actually finally kind of turned a corner on this, and Tedros himself said that he thought the lab leak theory needed to be studied more thoroughly and that China had not been fully cooperative. So he showed some spine, you know, but we lost about a year uh, of study. We lost about a year of research at a time when scientists all over the world were were working 18 hours a day, all these different fields, scientists doing heroic work in any way they could make a contribution on this pandemic. This one really key question was was kind of held off limits, and the fail. So the failure of the World Health Organization and other institutions to to keep that line of inquiry open. I think we will look back and see this as a as a as a dark day, not just for science, but for the but but for the uh, the field of public health in general. Let's spend a second and uh, be armchair scientists for a second. I know uh, you're not epidemiologist, but um, as you've read the leading scientists who believe the Wuhan theory, what arguments do, do they provide 
that give you pause that suggest that potentially the Wuhan lab leak um, is real. And to quote your your other buddy who said, um, how I learned to love the Wuhan lab leak theory. Right, right. Well, there's sort of two sets of uh, of evidence. Uh, one is circumstantial, and that would be the absence of any – they have not found any reservoir in in the natural world uh, for this virus. Um, they the, the Wuhan Institute was studying some viruses from a particular cave uh, that look somewhat similar to this virus, and we know that 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 that, that that particular cave or mine, um, there were actually some people who were cleaning up bat droppings, got infected and, and uh, years ago um, with a respiratory ailment. So, um, so there's a circumstantial evidence that um, we haven't found a natural reservoir. We do know that, that Wuhan was investigating somewhat similar viruses and had those uh, at the lab. And then, um, so so theory one could be that a, it's a natural virus, but we don't have the genome identified, uh, but it is something that the lab was studying and, and, you know, a lab worker got infected or somehow the virus got out and got into the population. That seems, you know, quite plausible. The, the related idea is that the lab was doing gain of function research, manipulating the virus, uh, in, in ways to make it more infectious. And the argument for doing that is that we can perhaps predict ways that this virus might naturally evolve that would make it more dangerous. If we, if we make those changes ourselves and see how dangerous it is, then maybe we'll know better how to fight it. If this happens, we could make a vaccine in advance in theory. That's the rationale for the gain of function research. It's, there's an, another, um, uh, there's a guy at Rutgers who um, who calls that uh, like some, he says the, that's the equivalent of looking for a uh, gas leak with a lighted match because you know these labs do not have a great record of safety even though the Wuhan lab was supposed to be a a, a, a level four uh, biosafety lab which means you know everything is completely controlled um, with negative pressure and special suits. It turns out they were doing they were doing a lot of their research at at level three or level two levels of biosecurity. Level two would be more similar to what you would have at your dentist's office. So you know the idea that this was a this lab was absolutely bombproof. There's no way anything could leak. You heard heard that a lot in the press in the early months of pushing back against this hypothesis. It wasn't true. The lab was not that secure. No, these labs do not have a great record of of, of security. Uh, other uh, uh, epidemics have been caused by leaks from labs. So it's not a crazy, wild conspiracy theory to worry about it. And I think what, what, we're, what we're seeing with, um, with the Wuhan lab is that the, um, all, this whole set of circumstantial evidence um, is, is persuasive. It's, not, it's, it's far from an open and shut case. Um, but then there's also the genetic evidence, and this is uh, this is a very arcane discussion about uh, this particular spike protein that the virus has that allows it to bond to, to human cells and and, and get its uh, its genetic material into the cell. There's a particular um, uh, genetic sequence related to that spike protein protein that some researchers say 
is extremely uncommon or, or unheard of in nature, but common, but one that's commonly manipulated by people doing this gain of function research. It's, an, it's a little uh, chunk of, of DNA that's easy to insert and manipulate. So therefore, it's, it's commonly done. So when some people saw that particular piece of the code, uh, one virologist initially said that was a, he called it a smoking gun. Uh, that, that was David Baltimore. He has since walked that statement back a little bit. But a lot of people saw that and said, wow, this really looks like uh, an insertion, a man-made uh, insertion in the code in order to make this, this virus um, more virulent. Others have, have come back and said, no, this is uh, possible in nature. It's not that uncommon. You know, I'm not qualified to answer the question, but I think it's fascinating that it took so long for the question to be asked because this the the, the genetic sequence of uh, of the the virus was released in January 2020 by a very brave Chinese uh, researcher who thought it was important for the world to get their hands on it. The fact that he released that uh, sequence was why we were able to create these vaccines so quickly. But the but. So that's a positive thing. But the negative part is that this important question, which is, you know, above my pay grade to be able to answer, but I think it's, you know, nothing could be more crucial, got kind of put on the back burner for uh, for uh, roughly a year. Uh, not entirely, because there were people who were looking into it, but it was it was uh, pretty much absent from the paper, the pages of major. Um, Let me try uh, a different uh, line of questioning. Um, and that is the role of the mainstream media versus alternative media. And, and you've kind of described, you know, a number of journalists outside of the mainstream media who really challenged this question and, and challenged, and it did not come from internal. Um, and it reminds me a little bit of of uh, the autobiography by Seymour Hirsch, um, the former New York Times and then independent uh, investigative journalist. And in that book, and, and and when I met him in person. What he emphasizes is that real difficult, challenging investigative journalism is rarely done by the mainstream media and has to be done on the outside. Um, and he did his, his work uh, on various aspects of the Vietnam War and you know various massacres that occurred there. Um, and so should we be surprised um, that it took – it seems almost random, a former New York Times guy working independently writing for a medium, which is I've never even heard of. Um, Vanity Fair, which is a completely unlikely uh, source for material like this. But going forward, should we expect blogs and podcasts and independent sleuths and investigative journalism to be not done by mainstream media but to be done on the outside? And maybe we should just embrace it and say this is the way uh, investigative journalism will work going forward. Yeah, and I think that's um, a very dangerous assumption. Uh, and I have to say, like, it's easy to say that really long-term, in-depth investigative work typically happens outside of mainstream institutions. But but Hirsch's, you know, long after the New York Times, Hirsch's work was published for for decades in the New Yorker. They would and they could afford to pay him, you know, what if he worked on a story for a year, they would pay that. They would pay for him to do that, you know. And unless you're independently wealthy, nobody can work for a year on a story. Um, and travel around the world and publish it on their blog. Um, you know, it's uh, there's a probably a whole different episode could be done about the rise of Medium and Substack and the ways that they are creating revenue streams 
for a small number of really interesting, provocative uh, journalists, many of whom are, are you know, challenge uh, the mainstream views on a lot of issues. That's a great story, and it's exciting what's happening there. But there, I, I don't, I don't think there's a substitute for the the kind of old school reporting team, whether you know Wall Street Journal, New York Times, or or what have you, spending the the weeks and months on on a, on a story and being backed up by the uh, resources of a of a of a journalistic organization, backed up by the by a, 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 I've been involved in a number of cases where you needed to make sure you had the legal team to, to support you because, you know, people start threatening to sue you. Uh, I mean, I, you know, like when I covered entertainment, we covered cases of, of sexual harassment and sexual abuse in entertainment companies. And boy, you, you don't want to go down that road without a legal team that's really ready to fight for you. Well, an independent writer is, just isn't going to have that. So, I'm uh, I'm 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 kind of heartbroken at the way that our leading journalistic institutions have uh, pulled back from the the mission of sort of fearlessly chasing the truth. And all too often, their interest in a story depends on on making sure that it it helps the right side. You know, and I'm not saying that they think that they're not telling the truth or they think they're hiding things. I don't think they think that. But, you know, they perceived the lab leak story as something that would help Trump politically. And that to them was a bigger problem than whether or not it was true. And, and just to and, follow that up, um, when Biden uh, turned against that idea and said, I'm going to have a full scale investigation, was he attacked or challenged by any? Uh, no, no, oh, no, nothing like that. I mean, there were people who a lot of people said, well, now we can finally look into it. We couldn't look into it before, you know. It was too. It was. It was. It was too. Um, you know, Trump just made that everything so toxic that we couldn't. It just. Well, There's no way we could look at it before. I mean, there were journalists who, who were literally like went on Twitter and, and said that. Um, and you know, here's but here's the paradox part. Trump did mess everything up. You know, I mean, Trump brought so much chaos into every discussion that that all kinds of institutions that that would have you know, might have functioned better, wound up, you know, trying to anticipate what he's going to say or, or, or push back or not want to get involved and not, you know, and it was a, um, it was, uh, you know, the people who partly hold Trump responsible for some of this, they're not entirely wrong, but I think scientists and journalists should be made of tougher stuff. They shouldn't well, avoid a story just because Trump mentioned it. Yeah, you know, in some ways, this is not a, a just a domestic event. This is an international event, and we have global institutions. We have global uh, media institutions, global in, in investigative journalists. We've got global health organizations. We've got global uh, medical and scientific communities. All right, if the United States dropped the ball specifically on this one issue, and we, you know, with Operation Warp Speed, we were able to get all these vaccines out. So we we did some things right, some things wrong, as uh, as institutions. Why do you think? Um, <clears throat> the international institutions failed us as well, uh, non, non-U.S. Yeah, well, I mean, similar. It's, it wasn't all Trump. Um, you know, there was, there's, there's, uh, you know, there is a, a generalized fear of right-wing populism among elite institutions. So, you know, you might have seen some of that not just here, but but around the world. Let's not give the the isolationists and the xenophobes any any ammunition. I think there might have been some of that. 
And but when it comes to the World Health Organization, you see the enormous power of China and a certain shamelessness. Uh, you know, when that team uh, from the World Health Organization went to Wuhan, China threw out a theory. Well, maybe it didn't come from the wet market. We don't think it came from the wet market. We think it came in on a, a some uh, shipments of frozen fish from somewhere else. Yeah, and the uh, and so the. The World Health Organization people dutifully had to include this absurd idea that the, the virus must have come, might have come in on frozen. They didn't endorse it, but the very fact that they included this this theory with no evidence was kind of a, a symbol of their willingness to to kowtow. And then later, China said, "Well, no, no, maybe it came from there was some kind of uh, athletic competition involving athletes involved various militaries around the world and some some U.S." Military athletes had been in Wuhan, I think, in in September, October of that year. So, no, they must have brought it. It must have come from the U.S. Just this kind of shameless finger-pointing conspiracy kind of thinking from the highest levels of the Chinese government. And, um, you know, there, there's a brazenness uh, in, in their actions. And they they know that people overseas might not believe that, but they also know that in the, their domestic um, politics – this might be all people here. They'll have no reason not to believe the, the theories that the Chinese government puts forward because they have such control over the media. You know, the way that China clamped down on its domestic media covering any of these issues was staggered. I mean, they had hundreds of censors working daily to make sure that, that the wrong, what they would consider the wrong information about COVID did not reach the or get shared in Chinese social media. So the power of China is is another story that we're going to have to grapple with. It's going to be the story, you know, of the next 50 years is is what to do about this this superpower that is really operating outside of the norms of of modern democracies. Jim, we end each session with uh, a note of optimism. Uh, what are you optimistic about as it relates to the scientific community and the media? Yeah. So first of all. It sounds like I'm I'm blaming scientists for the situation. There were I think there was uh, uh, an effort by a small group of, of scientists to suppress this discussion. The good news is there were a lot of other scientists who kept pushing. There was a particularly impressive uh, woman named Alina Chan. She's a postdoc at the Harvard MIT Broad Institute. She doesn't even have a job yet. She's uh, she's and yet she did this long series. She published papers and wrote long, fascinating articles, and now a book all about the, the, the lab leak theory. Very, very brave, very independent. She wasn't the only one. Um, so even on this topic, there, was a lot of, there were a lot of people doing great work. And as you see, we ultimately – we lost a year, but we ultimately got to where we, we need to be in terms of, of looking objectively at the question. We probably won't get an answer, but at least we're looking at it. My my optimism comes from everything else that happened. I mean, you know, in every field, I, I've done a lot of work on ventilation, air quality, whether or not the, the virus is aerosol. You had so many scientists from other fields dropping what they were doing, focusing on this, getting together, writing papers, doing things that really had an impact on, on public health, had an impact on our understanding. And then the crowning jewel in that, of course, is this really miraculous effort to get these vaccines out in you know, in maybe half the time um, uh, that that most experts thought it would take, 
and the efficacy of these vaccines is just so stunning. It's such a, you know, it, it, that's a really, really impressive story. An impressive story about not just science, but the a, a really smart collaboration between private industry and and the resources of, of the federal government, the public-private partnership. We get so much criticism of big pharma, but these guys did something really miraculous, and the government did something that only governments can do, which is, which is, you know, bring on the resources and the planning and the logistics to to make sure we got not just have the vaccines in, uh, invented, but manufactured in huge quantities. I'd like to see the U.S. government continue to invest heavily in this. We should be sending these vaccines everywhere around the world as fast as we can. You know, it's if it if it costs us. $80 billion to, to vaccinate the world. That's a fantastic investment that we should be, we're doing it, but we should be doing it even more aggressively. So I'm optimistic that there, there's, you know, we have resources, we have smart people, and we will be better prepared next time, you know, one of these things hit. So, uh, so it's, a, it's a guarded optimism, but it is optimism. Jim, thank you so much for your time. Hey, it's my pleasure. That ends today's session, but I want to take a minute to plug next week's show. Our next session will be Sunday, August 8. Our first speaker is Robin Greenwood, who is a professor in finance at the Harvard Business School. Robin will discuss his latest research on financial markets. Our second speaker will be Bruce Tuckman, who is a professor at the NYU Stern School of Business. Bruce was recently the chief economist at the CFTC, which is the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Bruce will speak about what he learned in government and the challenges persuading a bureaucracy to implement your ideas. Our final speaker is Gary Gallagher, who is the John Nell Professor in the History of the American Civil War at the University of Virginia. I met Professor Gallagher when I took his online teaching company course on the Civil War. The topic of Gary's discussion will be how to teach the Civil War in schools today. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned for next Sunday to find out what happens next. Goodbye, and you can disconnect now.